Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI. Our co-host Julia Joja is out today. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Yulia Mendel, um, a journalist, writer based in Kiev, and the former press secretary to President Volodymyr Zelensky, and the author of The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, it's a real privilege to have you on the program. And I think we should start with uh, the fact that you are originally from Kherson. You have family in Kherson, which I understand has suffered under under the Russian occupation. And, and I wonder if you could just share some of the impressions from the from the past couple of days, from the liberation, from reconnecting with your with your relatives, and uh, from where you think uh, the Ukraine war effort might go from here. Thank you for having me. Well, in the last nine months, we rarely have any moments of joy. And actually, the liberation of Kherson was that very rare moment when we were crying, not because of somebody's death or because of horrors of war, but we were crying because of joy. Let me say that last week, I was able to talk to my aunt who stayed under Russian occupation for all these months. And we were like comforting each other that when Russians leave, I can visit her and she was looking forward she's very close to me and at that moment it seemed to be so far you know it was like a dream and we never knew when it would come so now we can chat several times per day and uh, i see that she's very joyful she cries all the time i cry all the time <laughs> i managed to talk to my parents at last and i was very nervous because they are in herson city and there was the week when there was no connection i knew there was no communication heating, a light or water. I knew they were working, they are doctors, and I knew that there were Russians. Indian army came. Imagine what, what the feeling I had and no words from them. So now I could talk to them. It's very difficult condition. But at the same time, they're very happy. And what they say, if the Ukrainian army is there, they believe they have future. It's really, it's been just, I mean, it warms hearts all across the West uh, as well to, to see the videos of, um, uh, you know, the survivors, I guess you should call them, welcoming soldiers uh, into the central square and family reunions and all the rest of that. It was striking, too, because there's kind of a presumption, not least among so-called Russia experts, that the city and much of southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine had originally been sort of Russophile and Russian speaking. Can you put that in some sort of context for us? And I'm 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 sure the experience of Russian occupation uh, changed a lot of hearts and minds. But take us another step farther into either your family story or or what you know about the people of Kherson. Yes, thank you. This is a very important question for the reason that Russia tried to use uh, the fact that uh, a lot of regions in Ukraine uh, had Russian-speaking people to actually justify its brutal war against Ukraine. But let me first say that there is no any justification for killing people in uh, such a mass 
mass uh, for making all those tortures, for having mass graves, for stealing children, rapes, and all those horrors that Russia's, Russians are doing in Ukraine. Second thing, uh, well, a lot of people in post-Soviet region and a lot of people around the world speak Russian language. And it doesn't have a right anyone to come into another country and to start a war, especially if it's independent country. Uh, the thing was that um, Vladimir Putin is really very disturbed by having any kind of democracy in post-Soviet region. Let me say that Ukraine is the biggest territory of freedom and the biggest territory of democracy in post-Soviet region. And of course, it's very disturbing for him and uh, it makes him angry. He, uh, he has a lot of imperialistic ambitions and he wants Ukraine actually to be a kind of sub-nation under Moscow, the narrative that uh, Russia has been promoting for dozens and dozens of years. So the thing is that I'm coming from a Russian-speaking family. I am a Ukrainian-speaking person. My aunt is a Ukrainian-speaking person. Uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, Russian-speaking people in Kherson, and there were a lot of people who spoke Ukrainian in the villages. Um, I don't remember any kind of conflicts that probably we would have, you know, or anyone who would say we want to join Russia. The thing is that Russia can't, doesn't have a right to monopolize Russian language or Russian culture uh, after we have had uh, 70 something years of the USSR to justify the invasion and and and, and so those horrors that it does. So, um let me say that for many Ukrainians, especially those who were Russian-speaking, after this terrible invasion, Russian language turned into a language of terrorism because it was used as an instrument of terrorist actions in our country. So I see that many very important leaders, pop stars, uh, politicians, they are switching to Ukrainian to say that this is our way to preserve our identity and to say Russia that it doesn't have any right to to invade us and we will stand for Ukraine. I wonder if I could change the gears just a little bit. So, so you know, it's a rare privilege for us to have somebody on the podcast who worked intimately with President Zelensky. And uh, before the war, I think many people in the West were sort of at a loss about you know on on, on what to think about him. On the one hand, I think there was a great sort of symbolic significance to his election as a Jewish president of Ukraine, given given the country's you know long and and and, and complicated complicated history. On the other hand, there were question marks about you know is he a serious person? Uh, what's his leadership style? How he was going to govern, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I wonder if you could uh, maybe enlighten us on what it was like to work with him. Uh, what were his interactions, uh, you know, were working with him at the time when he had this famous phone call <laughs> with President Trump over, 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 you, you know, aid to Ukraine in exchange for, you know, certain investigations and, and so on and so forth. So, so, you know, any anecdotes that can sort of shed light on what he is like as a person uh, occupying Ukraine's highest office of state would be, would be appreciated. 
Yes, thank you. So yes, of course, in my book, The Fight of Our Lives, I'm uh, telling a lot of anecdotes about my work with Zelensky. Um, but this is uh, my attempt to show how he was turning from the image of a comedian into a statesman and from a statesman, actually, into a leader of the country in war. Mm-hmm. Um, let me say that Zelensky has been underestimated for years and years because of his image of, of a comedian. But everybody, of course, doesn't pay a lot of attention that he is a lawyer by education with special focus on constitution and actually probably for a western reader it's difficult to appreciate how much effort it takes to a person to build a, a business of such a large scale in post-soviet region uh there were there were so many challenges starting from you know corruption uh weak institutions but also the russian penetration of information space and entertainment business um so he had so many challenges to grow as a leader but at the same time he developed his talent of a comedian very very well and he often uses humor today to try to mitigate some you know diplomatic challenges and to warm up the situations with leaders from the world but let me say he's also a human being and uh he's a very hard working person and that's why he dream, drinks an enormous cups of coffee and also he was before the war he was just addicted for sports he was um, studying every his day with sports he uh, had his gym at home he was even uh, recording video from even his first interview in Brussels was from the gym because the gym was planned and the interview was not so just compare the situations right um he was jogging often uh in the mornings when we were traveling even when we were traveling to donbass he was starting his day from jogging there um but also let me say that people often ask me if i was surprised when i saw the zelensky stayed in kiev when actually he was offered to go out and to save himself and to run the country from in exile right but i was not I was not for the reason that I was traveling with him so many times to the war zone. Let me remind you that Russia attacked Ukraine for the first time back in 2014. And in eastern region of Donbass, we had military actions happening. And there were a lot of uh, moments when there was shelling and there was threat to life. And I'm in details explaining in the book how Zelensky was not listening to his personal security and was actually going to the zone of shelling to stand with his soldiers to handshake or to show that the leader is not leaving when there is the threat. So within this, he's in good terms, a little bit, you know, crazy to show the leadership but at the same time they this gave him you know this character in in a real uh military war situation to stand in ukraine and to show russia we will be fighting back uh so uh, i think ukrainians are very very uh grateful to him because he managed to unite ukraine and he managed to unite the whole civilized world to stand with ukraine when we are having this the most important battle the battle of our lives of democracy against autocracy in post-soviet region you know it it is i think fair to say that the i i don't need a ride i need ammunition line sort of did catapult him to uh, a stature of almost mythic heroism that he's lived up to uh, without fail ever since. 
so it's it, generations of historians going forward i think we'll wonder whether things would have gone differently if he had accepted that 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 offer from 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 the west and and whether you know that that sort of heroic ukrainian resistance could be sort of could have been sustained without that leadership on the on the top i think that will be you know in, in sort of history textbooks uh, well i mean i'm not, i mean i Wait, we should wait for the historians to catch up to the rest of us. But, uh, you know, as a, as a semi-professional, uh, yeah, I, I mean, how else can you interpret it uh, or or understand it? But my, my question for Yulia is, so you knew him very closely, but did he surprise you in any way by, again, stepping up from a level of, you know, sort of very fine leadership? to a, a really a symbolic and almost mythic stature, not only for Ukrainians, but uh, I think for the entire West. Well, definitely Volodymyr Zelensky was a very passionate um, narrator for Ukraine uh, because everything that he was telling to the parliamentarians and the governments and the people of other countries, every his address was expressing what Ukrainians were enduring here. And that meant a lot for us, you know, because he became our voice. And we have all seen what happened to Afghanistan just, you know, eight months earlier. I remember just uh, in July helping New York Times journalists to get out from Afghanistan. And uh, I remember shock that I had because of, of what was going on and how the world was not prepared. And eight months later, I'm myself in the situation when the world again is not prepared. And that's like we... You know, we're here just for the moment that no one could help us. All our existence and all everything that we lived and built and dreamt about, everything we were planning, it was collapsing around us. Because the Western nations, they were expecting that we would collapse like in several days or several hours. And that was the moment when we needed to show that we will stand. So, of course, it wasn't Volodymyr Zelensky who was fighting on the front lines. But we all understand that without his voice, without him asking for, for, the, for the help, financial, military help, for sanctions against Russia, for diplomatic uh, uh, way to support, the Ukrainian soldiers would not be able to stand there and to fight Russians. Uh, so, yes, to some point, he became a legendary leader for the fact that he risked his own life to stand for our country's independence. And probably if every person has any mission in his or her life, that was his mission to be at that moment, at that place, and to make this very crucial choice, not for him, the crucial choice for 40 million nations. And maybe he can be criticized for, you know, lack of political experience or some decisions as every leader in the world. But definitely this one thing that he did put him in the world history as a person who saved the whole country. I have to ask you a question uh, as a, you know, Slovak American who uh, grew up during the years when 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 my home country emerged out of communism and 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 strived to to join the European Union and underwent all sorts of reforms in order to to qualify for membership, one of the things that struck me 
last week was was that after Kherson's liberation, you know, there were two flags on the main square. One was a Ukrainian one, and the other one that that people sort of put up was was it was a European one. I was in Kiev right after the Maidan, and I mean, I remember that sort of strong commitment to sort of you know reorient Ukraine towards a towards a European future. At the same time, uh, I think it's fair to say that it was ultimately the United States and a sort of subset of countries, some of them in Europe, uh, the UK, Poland, and others that have been spearheading aid and assistance to Ukraine, whereas some of the you know more traditional old members of the EU, if you will, have taken a more lukewarm lukewarm approach. I wonder what that has done, if anything, to to the Ukrainians, you know, commitment to the EU membership, to their views of the EU, to their, you know, views of Brussels. Well, I think that um, Ukrainians uh, believe that we belong to the free world and we belong to the European community. It happened that it was more difficult for us to, you know, follow as fast as, for instance, Poland or Slovakia or, you know, uh, any other uh, countries who managed to get into the, the European Union and to build strong institutions and strong economy. We understand in many ways it's more difficult for us because we have such a large border with Russia. And Russia was trying to control us in every sphere and to penetrate every sphere. But definitely in 2014, we made this choice. And the choice was for the European Union, because we understand this is our future. And we believe that we share the values, we appreciate the life, and we want to build uh, despite of Russia, uh, as we see that, you know, is only aimed to kill and make destructions. W- what is, you know, doing right now with, with, with its people, actually, with all the sanctions, with all its aggression, with all this propaganda, with violation of human rights and violation of uh, freedom of speech and all other freedoms. So, uh, you know, for us, it's actually our existential fight, but not only on the front line. It's our fight to prove to the world that we are the people who are like many other Western nations, belong to the free world. Okay, just to make sure we don't have any consistency in the conversation. As an American-American, the the, the the temptation is to try to understand uh, President Zelensky kind of as an analog to our own experience. Uh, many people ha- have thought there are two analogs. That's American Americans are telling me it's Reagan and Trump. So that, well, it's a okay, very different okay. analogs. I, I I would reach back further uh, to Abraham Lincoln uh, to begin with, but also uh, I think about uh, George Washington as well. Not not that President Zelensky is himself a soldier, but in terms of sort of the birth of or you know husband. Uh, 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 overseeing the the birth of a an old nation that's also a new nation, or will be a very different nation, uh, and in particular, you wonder what the president might be thinking about how to bring his term of office to a conclusion, uh, and to enshrine in a victorious moment. Let us just stipulate that, but to to really ultimately by his own willingness to step aside for someone else, enshrine democratic norms in the country in a way that, uh, uh, you know, and the transfer of power uh, as being the, the real symbol of 
a vibrant and mature democracy. So I wonder if you have any insights about that or whether you could even speculate about how, you know, again, that's is obviously uh, will be a, a nice problem to have uh, and a future one, but, but still, I think something that uh, certainly I have wondered about. Let me say that 2014 is really going to be a very hot political year in the world. We're having a lot of countries who are having elections and in domestic way and on international arena, it will be really a big fight, right? And Ukraine also has elections in 2024, like half of a year earlier than, than uh, the United States do. And um, like in two months later, after Putin is going to be reelected, if, <laughs> if I make joke if I may joke yeah. in such a way, right? We, we never know what's going to happen, right? Just just a joke. So uh, yeah, you could uh, see he could be dead and still be reelected. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had this funny anecdote in our life, yeah, in our politics, domestic politics. We had a, a mayor who never appeared uh, uh, even once to the public, and he was heavily uh, ill, uh, seriously sick. And he died during the campaign, but he was reelected. So I, I it happened. You were going to mention Chernyenko and Andropov. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So um, Ukraine is also going to have very hot, uh, very hot elections. Um, probably both to uh, president's race and parliamentary race. <clears throat> um, if you want an insight, I'm sure that Volodymyr Zelensky is going to run. He is preparing already the place. Uh, Ukrainian president can be uh, for two terms, can take this position for two terms. So nothing is illegal here. There will be no like two candidates from Republicans or Democrats. There can be like 40 mm. or 50 candidates in the first run. Then there are two who are elected who take like first and second position if no one gets 50 uh, percent plus one voice. If no one gets, then we have the second tour, in, uh, tour and then round the second round and then, you know, somebody wins. Uh, president Zelensky has a huge support right now we don't know what's going to happen and it's very ungrateful right now to predict because ukraine is gonna go into really a huge very bad post-war period with economy with uh, utilities with all the difficult post-traumatic syndrome you know uh, people who lost their beloved ones people who lost their lives jobs uh, and you know homes everything so you never know how it will go and it's very ungrateful to predict but there is already this war made and used in Ukraine. A new candidate uh, appeared in this war who has the same huge rating as President Zelensky. So we expect at least two um, candidates with high rating and there can be more more politicians. But this is about democracy, right? Because if, if we look at Belarus or Russia, um, there is only one who is going to win or somebody who is actually appointed, like there was Medvedev, who was the right hand of Putin and he stayed there, you know, just not to violate constitution. In our case, we have opportunity to elect anyone. So after the war, we need to restore our devotion to the freedom of speech for the reason that right now all the media are working for the state mostly, like trying to trying to be a guardian uh, of the state, let's say so, uh, trying to be very cautious about the reporting, trying to, you know, report in the way to not to damage the country, which is on one way 
something that would every journalist around the world do. On the other hand, which is very concerning for the freedom of speech, definitely. And as soon as the war is finished, we will need to restore this thing. But let me say that Ukraine has developed a very uh, multi-voice uh, media environment. We have a lot of independent media and we have a lot of investigative independent uh, journalists. So it's it's going to be a very difficult period uh, in terms of many, many ways. And Ukrainians understand this. At the same time, we really hope that in 2024, we will be able to enjoy the same type of democracy as we used to enjoy in 2019, because there is no any other reason or explanation for Volodymyr Zelensky becoming our president than really a huge democratic way of elections that Ukrainians had here in 2019. I mean, you wonder whether the sort of Churchill Attlee model is something sort of associated with, you know, we will just have to see like what, what that does psychologically to people. If, if the sort of existential threat suddenly from one day to the next is gone. But before we get there, I think there are, you know, lots of fights to be fought in Ukraine, but also in the West. So there was a midterm election in the United States and it looks like, you know, there is a part of the Republican Party a subset of Democrats as well that 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 do harbor some skepticism about you know an open-ended U.S. assistance to to Ukraine. Some voices in Congress are calling for greater oversight, greater degree of control. Others are saying you know there should be not not a penny more spent on 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 helping Ukraine. Would you have any message to 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 people in the United States who are you know skeptical? Of 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 you know the, of the of of the role that, that that the United States should be playing in 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 this war. You know the thing is that if you can imagine any dystopia, that would be a Russian reality. Uh, Russia has turned corruption a part of its identity. Russia has turned the life of millions and millions of Russians into a disaster, and uh, Russia is bringing the horrors from the past to our country. I mean the horrors from the World War II, Hunger Games, you know, to the world, uh, energy, blackmail, uh, the genocidal practices. If we lose, <laughs> and we will if there is no support from the West, then Russia is going to spread further. Then the European Union will be bordering Russia. And I'm sure that no one wants that. But that will provide Russia a lot of strength and confidence that it can you know, grab any democracy, kill any democracy and move forward and it will never be punished. So we are sacrificing here our lives uh, for defending not just some territory or, you know, money or, you know, whatever. We are sacrificing our lives here for believing in the fact that we all need to enjoy the freedoms of, of you know, civilized world, that we need to enjoy democracy and that we must stand for our right to choose and to live the life we all want to live. And I'm sure that every American understands that freedom is a fundamental value to build our societies on. And, you know, we rely on the United States as a very, very, you know, strategic partner. We believe that Americans understand that they cannot give such a powerful instrument of influence to autocracies. It's just not about only the war. It's it's the way of how all we will live tomorrow. It's our common fight for the values that we all believe in. So 
I would really ask, as a Ukrainian who stayed here through the whole war and stands here and believes in my country, please stand with us until we can defeat the evil so that we all can live in the free world and understand that we will make progress and we will be stronger together. I, I will leave the closing remarks to Dalibor, but if I'm sorry that in some ways this isn't a televised or broadcast uh, podcast because um, Yulia is in Kiev, uh, which has suffered a spate of missile attacks today. Um, she is illuminated by candlelight, yet we still have an internet connection and she still got her earbuds uh, in. Uh, Yulia, you're like your president, you're a, a symbol of uh, Ukraine's quest for uh, freedom and modernity and uh, your willingness to uh, to suffer to achieve it. So thank you for joining us. Yulia, thank you. It's been a real privilege. Your book is called The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. We'll include the link in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, you know, sharing your platform and the ideas of Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine with the audience. I mean, every spread of the word is a contribution to fight Russian propaganda and lies. And this is very important. Well, that's why we started the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with, with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. Don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front newsletter through the link included in the show notes, and you'll get more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoy this episode, Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.